This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. When it comes to Christians voting, John Wesley had something very interesting to say in his journal back in 1774. This is what he said. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Sounds like solid advice, but some of us might point out that John Wesley never had to live in 2016, much less 2020. Nowadays, it's the Christian never-Trumpers assisting the left and accusing evangelicals of bailing on all their moral principles when they voted for Donald Trump. And yet here we are on the cusp of another election. What will evangelicals do this time around? What should we do? We're going to talk about it all today with author and radio host Dr. Michael Brown, who is out with a new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? Michael, great to have you here again. How are you? Oh, great. Great to be with you. And that is the first time I heard that Wesley quote. I can't believe it. Oh, but great. That, that's kind of why I wrote the book I wrote. Yeah, I was thinking that. And in fact, that was the reason that I brought that quote out, because your book reminded me of that, trying to kind of go through all these issues. If we're Christians, how do we treat each other over voting and these sorts of things? Here's my first question for you, Michael. What is the Trump test? I'm sure a lot of people are wondering that portion of your title. What is that exactly? Yeah, so I mean it in two ways. Number one, if we feel that Donald Trump is the candidate who best represents what's important to us in terms of pro-life, pro-family, pro-security, pro-Israel, those things that matter to many evangelicals, can we vote for him without compromising our witness in the process? Is there a way to say we stand for Trump, here's why, while maintaining our integrity and witness before watching world? That's part one of the Trump test. Part two is, Within the church, where we still have division, can we unite around Jesus without savaging each other over Donald Trump? Because right now, we're about as vicious to each other as the secular media is to us, and somehow we've got to do better in the eyes of the world. That is really important when you're talking about those two aspects of consideration for Christians, because I agree with you wholeheartedly. The first question, obviously, has come up again and again and again. Can you vote for Trump? Is this a violation of Christian principles? I feel like for the last four years, those who voted for Trump have been trying to explain this, why they voted for him. 81% of white evangelicals, that's been trumpeted a million times. But is the question not settled yet? I mean, have have white evangelicals who voted for Trump and, and even, you know, other races who voted for Trump or Christians, have we not made that point yet about party platforms, about life, about religious liberty, all the rest of these things? Or do you think it's still a big issue? Well, it keeps coming up as an issue. Part of it is because the, the left-wing media is going to constantly inflame it and throw it in our face. 
and basically say, you need to denounce Trump and renounce Trump before we take you seriously. My response to them is, you didn't take me seriously before. Right. You, you didn't <laughs> like my positions on moral and social and cultural issues before. So don't make it as if Trump is now the, the straw that broke the camel's back. You already call us fanatics and Nazis and homophobes and bigots and all that. So part of it is the left-wing media inflaming things. Part of it is that we did have a history saying for years and years and years, and I've got a lot of quotes like this in my book, why we couldn't vote for Bill Clinton, why we couldn't vote for this one, because morality matters and character counts. And what we've kind of said is it's true, but these are really existential issues, and we're talking about the tyranny of China and Iran getting a nuclear bomb and the slaughter of the unborn. So even though Trump is not the kind of character we like. Here's where we vote for him. I think what we also have to say is your character does count, and we wish some of his behavior would be different. You know, he gives a great speech about Rushmore, inspirational, great civil rights speech, too. And then within hours, he's trashing Bubba uh, Wallace on NASCAR. It's like, okay, <laughs> I think we need to more loudly say, yeah, we don't like that, but here are the reasons we are voting. Make our case better and not become apologists of Donald Trump. And I feel, Janet, as if we got into a bit of a cycle because he kept his promises to evangelicals, because he's been so loyal to so many of the causes, kept his doors open to us, done things that no other president has done for evangelical causes. We've kind of felt that we have to defend him at every turn. That, I think, is a mistake. We can say, no, Jesus is our Savior. He gets our heart, our life, our soul, our mind, our total loyalty. Trump's our president. Here's why he gets our vote. And then with Dennis Prager, we can say Trump also does show great character qualities and that he has kept his word time after time in very difficult situations. So that we see as positive as well. Well, how much of the argument, internal argument within the church now comes down to a renewed problem in the church? At least I see it as a problem that you're seeing the growth of woke ideology. You're seeing more liberalism in the church, even in traditionally conservative evangelical circles. It's becoming more of an issue. You see this in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. So how much of this internal debate about Trump is fueled by genuine political positions versus Christian principles. I mean, it, it seems that there's a big divide and there's a big mix in, but it's not exclusively, I would argue, based around the Bible necessarily. I agree with you. And there is this rush for, for us to prove how woke we are and to virtue signal. And therefore, subtly, we go along with the narrative that Trump is a racist and a white supremacist, and anyone who supports him is therefore a racist and a white supremacist. And what we have to do is is push back against that. Say, yeah, of course, we stand for justice. But can we ask you a question? Did Trump do more to help incarcerated blacks than any previous president? And he did more to help economy among blacks and stand with historic black colleges. So before you, you throw out the racist, white supremacist thing, Let's push back against it. And interestingly, as you mentioned, Southern Baptist, Dr. Al Mohler, who could not get himself to vote for Trump in 2016, was asked about 2020. And has Trump been a huge embarrassment? He said, yes, but he gets my vote in 2020, because when I look at the alternative, I can't go there. And that's the other case we have to make. Say, okay, I understand this. I understand what you don't like about Trump, and you think he lies here, and is irresponsible. I understand all that. But when it comes to the election... What, should I vote for, for Trump or for social anarchy, for Trump or for socialism, for Trump or for more justices that are going to even seal for generations to come the slaughter of the unborn? When it comes to the vote, 
What do I do with it? So we need to push back. We can't always be on the defensive here. I agree with you. That's really good. And going back to your point about Bill Clinton, I I remember all of this that went on, and I remember the whole impeachment debacle and everything that went on during the, the Clinton years, and it was a terrible time, I think, for our country. But when we're going back to Clinton, Clinton's opponent was Bush, George Bush and and Clinton's opponent was Bob Dole and Ross Perot. We we didn't have somebody Mm -hmm. who really had all of the baggage of Hillary Clinton. How much of that is a factor here, too, that times have changed and you may have two imperfect candidates when it comes to morality, but you you have somebody who just has a track record of many decades of not only terrible character, but terrible policies as well. Right. And that's why I have a whole chapter in the book asking what would have happened if Hillary was elected. And to be candid, I, I opposed Trump during the primaries. I like Ted Cruz. I, I like pretty much everybody better than Trump. Yeah. The more momentum he got, the more I realized there was something to this. He wasn't just duping everyone. And I, I kept saying, look, if it comes to Trump versus Hillary, then I'll reevaluate. So probably 80 to 90 percent of my vote for Trump was a vote against Hillary, especially because I didn't know if he would keep his promises. Now that I've seen him keep his promises and I see the alternatives and how the Democrat Party of today, this is not the Democrat Party of Bill Clinton. You mentioned the opponents, but what about the Democrat Party itself? This is the shout your abortion generation. The, The new Democrat platform, the draft of it mentions whites 15 times, always negatively, and and starts off about white supremacy. Things are going in a very, very different direction. And, and I look at it like this. If, if you are a persecuted Christian in China or trying to stand for your rights in Hong Kong, would you rather have a guy like Trump who's got a backbone of steel, he can be nasty, juvenile, immature, but he's actually going to stand up for your rights, or somebody else that may not be so nasty and juvenile, but he's going to stand with the Chinese government. Yeah. Or if you're a baby in the womb hoping for a better chance at life, do you want the guy that, that is not so nasty and juvenile but wants to see you slaughtered in the womb? Or the guy that can be nasty and juvenile who's going to fight for your right to life? These are existential issues. We have to paint them like that. So we say, yeah, character does count. And, and Trump's character flaws, they're his own worst enemy. But then let's look at the strength. Yep. Yep, exactly. Hang on a moment. Dr. Michael Brown will be back talking about evangelicals at the crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test right after this? This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles, both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jirish, an 80-year-old man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or $20 for $100. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us author, speaker, and radio host, Dr. Michael Brown. He's out with a new book. It's called Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? And we're talking about Christians and voting. Yes, we're on the cusp of another presidential election. And it's been a long four years in many ways. And some people think it's been a very short four years. But, you know, Michael, you made a great point before you went to the break there. And you were saying when you're a persecuted Chinese Christian, for example, what would your preference be? When it comes to the American president, uh, it, you know, this this whole situation that we're in as Americans right now is in many ways unprecedented, where we have violence in our streets. It started out ostensibly about George Floyd and about the way he was treated in Minneapolis. Now we just have Antifa, you know, setting a federal courthouse on fire. We've got murders and we've got a pandemic. We've got all this stuff, all this upheaval. And the difference is now we have a party that seems to be OK with it. Has the landscape shifted enough that we have to be a little bit more circumspect in looking at what our actual choices are as Christians? In other words, has it become more stark to you what our voting choices need to be? It's become much more stark. Two things have become much more stark. The choices that we have and then the role of the church, that we have to stop looking to the president and the White House and the Supreme Court and Congress to change America. We have to ask them to do what's right and to do what's constitutional and to do what's just and fair. But we've got to get on with our work. You know, that's a a mistake I think we make, that we put so much into the elections every year, billions of dollars raised and all the effort. We've got to pray, and it's the most important election ever. And, And it is true. It's massively important. But four more years of Trump won't solve America's problems. At best, it's like a wedge in the door. Yeah. And, and that's why a major part of this book is, is what our strategy has to be as believers to be the salt and light, because the only way America is going to avoid going off the precipice is with awakening in the church that spreads into the society, because otherwise we're in, we're in self-destruct or, or divide mode. I mean, at the best, we're going to have like another civil war, at least ideologically. So the choices are more stark. Daniel Pipes, Mideast expert, hotly opposed Trump. He was a cruise guy, hotly opposed Trump. He has some of the best never-Trumper credentials of any guy in the world. He's voting for Trump in 2020. And he's doing it a lot based on international policy and the implications of where things are going and where they could go. So, yes, we've got to look at more stark choices, and then we've got to realize the president, the White House, they can only do so much We've got to get on with our work. So I'm looking at Trump as kind of a wedge in the door. I just heard from a, a 
Chinese Christian leader that escaped uh, communism and is here in America, was basically exiled here by the government. And his words are that Trump is the only thing standing between America and a fall into socialism. And he's coming from communist China. So he's the wedge in the door, but then we've got to go about doing our work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny what you say about Daniel Pipes, because he's done such great work. But his father is, of course, Richard Pipes, who is a really huge scholar on Russia and the history of the Russian Revolution and communism. So he certainly understands those issues as well. And that's that's an interesting thing. So, you know, here's something else I want to throw out to you, Michael, since you're so good on this LGBT issue. One of the things that I've talked about with a number of Christians has been we love love what Trump has done on the life issue. We love what he's done on the religious liberty issue. We love how he's a fighter and he stands up to the left, all the rest of this stuff. We're not so fond of the way he acts sometimes and some of the ways he speaks and so forth. What about the LGBT issue, though? Because I would argue he's not as bad as the left. He's done a few good things, but he's not exactly taken on what I see as the coming tyranny of big gay. How do you see that issue? And and how does that relate to what you've just said, that we can't necessarily rely on the president or Congress or the Supreme Court to fix what ails this country? Yeah, I've, I've watched it carefully, and, and I think I understand how Trump operates here. On a personal level, he really doesn't have an issue working with gays, lesbians. He has all his life have an issue with people identify as trans, so he's got, you know, a major appointee, Richard Grinnell, and Ambassador Germany, and then serving on the cabinet in different ways, so the highest level that gays have served in, in the government. I, I believe that's the way he feels on a personal level, but he has consistently fought against the activist agenda in, in the society. So take, for example, the trans activism under the Obama administration, where it was federal law that if, if you did not allow a 15-year-old boy to play on the girls' softball team and share their locker rooms, shower stalls, etc., you would lose their, your federal funding. And over 20 states fought back against this to sue the Obama administration. Well, the Trump administration has reversed that. Yeah. That is no longer the policy. And, and there are many trans and gay websites you can go to, and they say he is the number one worst LGBT president in history. They're saying that for a reason. Look, I don't want people to to feel hated and rejected. I want them to know that God loves each one of us and wants to change each one of us. But bottom line is, you and I know the dangers of the agenda. And just the way Attorney General Barr has fought back against tyranny against churches during the pandemic, that you you can open the casino, but you can't open the church, abortion services are essential, but church services are not, I see him fighting against that larger agenda. And, and I think when push comes to shove, when he sees it as a religious rights issue, he will do the right thing. When he sees it just on a personal issue, personal level, I don't think it matters to him. And that's kind of the mix that we're getting. So it's not as strong as I'd like. But again, here, one other example. New York State says they're going to ban all so-called conversion therapy. So you're any age, you want to go to a psychologist to get professional counseling to help with unwanted same-sex attractions, illegal. An Orthodox Jewish attorney takes the state to court with the help of the Alliance Defending Freedom. New York instantly reverses itself. Why? Because the court this was going to go to had two new Trump appointees, and they knew they would lose, so they immediately pulled back. Right. That's the kind of thing that has an effect that we don't see as graphically as Supreme Court, but it's also big. Yeah, fair points, and I think that's important, and I think it is still consistent with what you've said before, that we can't look to government necessarily to be the leaders and we just follow along wherever they go. We have to hold them accountable. So when you're talking about a strategy for the church going into the 2020 election, Michael, what 
do you recommend Christians do as far as holding the government accountable and making sure that the decisions that are made in government are consistent with what the Lord wants us to do and what this country ought to be consistent with its own history and its own principles? Right. So I encourage evangelicals to remain involved in the political process, not just to drop out of discouragement because of the humanity of the candidates and the humanity of the system. So make your checklist. What is most important to, in God's sight for you and the next generation? And, and then where do the candidates stand? Where do the platform stand? To me, it, it becomes black and white that then you hold people accountable by, by speaking, by writing, by acting, by letting people know that they only get your vote, you know, local politicians and things like that, if they stay faithful. But then we get on with our business, hmm. that our first allegiance is to the cross before the flag. Our first emphasis is spiritual activity before political activity, that, that Trump is our president, Jesus is our savior, that we must gain our prophetic voice and be the salt and the light in our communities. And that rather than making Trump our message, Jesus is our message, the gospel is our message, righteousness is our message, family, these things are our message. And, and, and we don't allow anyone to push us off of that. And if someone says, you know, the moment they hear I vote for Trump, they won't talk to me, say, well, my vote's personal. You know, make it simple. Because the big thing is how you vote, right? Yeah. So if, if if Trump gets your vote, that's the big thing. Someone says, well, how'd you vote? Well, to me, that's a very personal issue. I don't like to discuss it. But let's talk about your life. What's going on in your life? Yeah. And we get on with our subject. When we stand before God, he's not going to say to us, what did you do with Donald Trump? But what did you do with Jesus? So we can't let the world, social media, push us and define the narrative. We need to define the narrative. You and I, radio talk hosts, columnists, we do what we do. So obviously, we're going to talk politics more than your local pastor, you know, cultural issues more than your local Christian. So let us do what we do. Let us be voices and let everybody else be the church in your community. Show the world a better life. Don't force them to talk about Trump or don't be forced to talk about Trump. Push the conversation you want to. And by all means, get out and vote in 2020 because the consequences are going to be massive. Well, they are. And I think one of the things that's important about what you just said there is we are so mischaracterized in the media day after day after day. There's this new book coming out. I'm going to get into this on my show a little later, but there's this new book that's come out saying that racism among white Christians is higher than among the white non-religious and it's all tied to Christianity. I mean, these sorts of attacks on Christians are coming fast and furious and I think when we are able to go against those caricatures with our friends and neighbors and say, this is what I believe about the word of God. And this is what the word of God says about sin and about what Christ did for us on the cross and why we need to be saved. And we can point to the problems in this world and say, we can't fix all these problems. Man has a serious problem that only Jesus can solve. That's, that's I think, another reason why it has to be about Jesus when we talk to people so they'll understand understand where we're coming from as far as a worldview. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have failed the Trump test in that we've got caught up with the fever as well. And I know I've seen Christians kind of lose their minds on both sides. You know, on the one side, it's as if Trump is the most important person on the planet and you don't dare say a word against him. And on the other side, Trump is the most wicked person on the planet 
And I've listened to never Trump or always Trumpers that are so extreme that I think, what happened to you? Mm. I remember when you were very balanced and sound and mature in your positions. So we've got to step back because the constant media bombardment and the constant news, it, it does influence our thinking. Let's step back. Let's get with God. Let's be great commission people who also vote and try to take advantage of the great liberties we have in this democratic republic. And let's use the, the real privileges we have as Americans and be involved in the system, but then let us get about the Great Commission. Let's get our focus where it needs to get, especially now when so many Americans, they're confused, they're hurting, they're uncertain, they're fearful. This is a perfect opportunity for us to rise up with a message of life and hope because we have what the world desperately needs. We sure do. Well said. Dr. Michael Brown, AskDrBrown.org, his website, and the book is Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Michael, thank you again. God bless you. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. We cannot tell you how grateful we are for your generosity. And we have been really excited about our campaign on behalf of Bible League International to send 1,200 Bibles to Asia to needy Christians there who don't have a copy of God's Word. And you guys have responded tremendously. I'm so grateful to the Lord. And I want to say thank you to each and every one of you who have called 800-YES-WORD and said, yes, I'll give $5 for one Bible. And I know many of you have given way more than that. But if you'd still like to participate, you can call 800-YES-WORD. There's also a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. And again, $5 will send one Bible to Asia for this campaign. And for a $35 gift, you can send seven Bibles and just go from there. But we're going to talk more now about why this Bible campaign is so important and hear a little bit about what the Lord is doing through Bible League International. Michael Woolworth joins us, Senior Director of Broadcast Media at Bible League. Michael, so good to welcome you back. How are you? Hey, Janet. Thanks for uh, championing uh, this cause. Uh, it's so important. And what a joy for us to tell these believers on the receiving end of those Bibles, hey, they're coming. They're coming. Why? Your listeners have chosen to get involved and be very, very generous. So great to be with you, Janet, today. Thank you so much, Michael. How are we doing? I know the last time that we talked, we had already blown past that goal. But where are we right now? Well, long before COVID-19 broke out and, uh, you know, the lockdown happened and things seemed pretty uncertain, um, Janet Mefford uh, today and Bible League said, let's do something about the other pandemic, and that's the dearth of Bibles available to Christians in Asia. We know this is where Christianity is growing fastest. We also know that watchdog groups tell us that arguably this is one of the most difficult regions of the world to live out your Christian faith. At Bible League, we've told you before, we've estimated that as few as one Christian in 10 has a Bible. That means that 90% of evangelical Christians uh, can't open the Word on a daily basis like you and I can and uh, be reminded of uh, the, you know, the great lover of our soul, how He cares for us. And so we asked your listeners, could you take care of a small chunk of a current need right now in that part of the world? 1,200 Bibles is our goal. And Janet, today, I'm happy to tell you that we're at 
2,100 Bibles. What's that mean? 2,100 Bible-less believers in places like China, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka will now have God's Word. Why? Because your listeners have chosen to get involved. Oh, man, that is wonderful. Thank you, guys. <laughs> thank no, you. Oh, amen. And thank mm. you, Lord. I, I'm so happy to hear that because when we talk about what we want to try to do for people who need copies of God's Word in Asia, you never know exactly what will happen. And especially, as you mentioned, Michael, during this pandemic, because I know many people have been hit hard financially uh, because of businesses being shut down and so forth. But I have to say, Michael, to brag on my listeners, they are the best. Absolutely. <laughs> best. Amen. And I'm really grateful to God for you guys. So if you want to continue to give more, we, we can always use more Bibles. So it's 800 mm. yes word. Amen. You know, Michael, Amen. let's talk a little bit about what Bible League does in Asia, because I'm sure there are questions that listeners have about how my gift goes for a Bible and then how the Bible gets to those Christians. What is the exact work, work of Bible League over in Asia that enables that process to happen? Yeah, well, think about Asia. More than half of the world's population uh, lives there. It's about 4.6 billion people. Think about China and India, two of the largest, uh, most populated countries in the world. Uh, The vast majority of people there, they follow Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or no religion at all. And so uh, many new Christians, Janet, begin their walk uh, with Christ in areas where a couple things— Church growth is not welcomed. It's not encouraged, right? And because of that, getting a Bible is very, very difficult. There's no Christian bookstore. There's no Amazon to drop a box of uh, Bibles uh, into uh, the the, uh, the, uh, villages there. And so what Bible League has done since 1938 uh, in six regions of the world, Asia, one of those, is we provide Christianity 101. It's called Project Philip. Who's Philip? The evangelist at Acts 8, who's very instrumental in that Ethiopian unit coming to faith in Christ. He takes the gospel back and and, and changes his part of the world. What was that Philip there able to do? Answer the question, right? Disciple this man. Get him on the right path. And so in the spirit of that Philip, we help create Philips all over the world, men and women who are able to uh, share Christ where God has placed him. But they begin with Project Philip. It's about 12 weeks in length, a little six by nine booklet, the Gospel of John paired with, again, what I like to call Christianity 101. How is Jesus both God and man? What's it mean to die to self and put on Christ? When Jesus says, if you want to be great in this kingdom, you learn to serve. And so they go through this program, Janet, I've been through it, and we know that all over the world, as people complete that program and profess faith in Christ, they're in a good place to begin their spiritual walk. And we promise them a Bible at the end. We never have to go into a village and say, Bibles, anyone? Uh, there are takers uh, ready for these Bibles. We know them by name. We know their villages. And that's what your listeners are helping us do today is make good on that promise to get them the Bible that they need as they begin their walk with Christ. That is awesome. Now, I know one of the places that you work is Bangladesh. And I understand you've got some news to talk about as far as your work distributing Bibles in Bangladesh. What is going on in that area of the world right now? Yeah, we've told you about India, China, uh, Cambodia. We were in Indonesia the last time we were together. Today, let me take you to Bangladesh, tell you about a man by the name of Burba. But first, let me tell you about Bangladesh. Central Asia borders uh, Nepal and China. 162 million people here, about 90% follow Islam. About a third of those are radical, so they are pushing Sharia law, Janet. The balance are Hindus, and about uh, half of the percentage of that population are evangelical Christians. We estimate about 900,000 Christians 
Christians uh, in Bangladesh. The dynamic there is with monsoon season, which is very active right now. About 5,000 people die. They can't get them evacuated. Or they're sort of, um, you know, just ignorant or uh, obstinate about uh, the storms. But thousands die. Thousands are displaced because of that. This is a place where, uh, where uh, William Carey uh, minister in the late uh, 18th century. So I'm sure that a lot of the success that we see is uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tracks laid by William Carey many, many years ago. Janet, I met with a guy by the name of Burba. Uh, you wouldn't know, as we sat there uh, near the c- country, the uh, capital of Dhaka, right by the Buraganga Bur- River. It's a, mm-hmm. It is a very stinky river, Janet. <laughs> he and I are sitting there. And five years ago, I found out he was a radical Muslim. He would assault Christians, burn churches. Um, God had a different plan for this man. He became a believer. He became a pastor, received uh, some theological training, went through our Bible League uh, church planter training and started planting churches. Now, let me tell you, his his wife um, and five kids live in a one-room apartment. <laughs> Muslims will not rent to this man. His landlord is a Hindu. They won't rent to him because they view him as an infidel. They've beaten him. They've jailed him. They've raped his wife. Many in the congregations have been assaulted. But this man has a joy, Janet, that is contagious. I mean, it's absolutely uh, contagious. He faithfully shares the gospel. He preaches the word. Sometimes it's a little bit irregular because they have to meet and and assemble with great sensitivity. But, Janet, uh, before I toss it back to you, one of the men that came to Saving Faith not too long ago was a man by the name of Gopal. Who is Gopal? A Dalit. You know what that means? An untouchable mm-hmm. in the yeah. social strata uh, there in Bangladesh. No one physically outside of his family ever touched him. I mean, a- a- never even laid a hand on him <laughs> until this man Burba came into the village. Uh, and he was he was happy to put uh, his hands on him, tell him about the gospel. And that left a lasting impression on this man, uh, Gopal. But also what stirs Gopal is what? He knows this man's story. Again, beaten, jailed, his wife assaulted, many in the congregation, um, again, have been assaulted because of their Christian faith. And yet, what does Jesus tell us in the Beatitudes? You know, when he gathered on the Sermon on the Mount, and he was there in the, you know, with his disciples, he said, what? If you want to know deep joy and happiness, what do he say? Blessed what? All those blessed things, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's what you see in a man by the name of Burba. And you know what? When he and I parted ways not too long ago, I said, Burba, those Bibles that you're needing, the Bibles that those heart-hungry Christians are needing, they are coming. There's about 400 Bibles needed right now in the Bengali language. And what God has allowed Bible League to do is to get those translations available, make these relationships happen. And we're simply asking your listeners today, as they've done in wonderful, generous fashion already, Janet, would you send God's Word to Bangladesh. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I know my listeners and I know that they want to get those Bibles where they are desperately needed. And I know the generosity that they have. So I'll give that number out. It's mm-hmm. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. $5 is all that it costs to send one Bible to Asia. So call 800-YES-WORD. There's also a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for your generosity. We thank God for you. And we thank God for Michael Woolworth from Bible League. Thanks so much, Michael. Keep up the good work. We give thanks for you, Janet. Thanks. Thank you. God bless. We'll be back right after this. Stay with us. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. 
That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 60 million babies' lives have been taken through abortion, and there are millions of additional preborn babies whose lives are still at risk. But the Ministry of Preborn stands in the gap with young moms in crisis, helping them to choose life. When I saw my baby for the first time on an ultrasound, I just felt so shocked and so surprised. I was just so scared. After learning all my options, I chose life. It was important for me to make the right choice. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. They're the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, helping moms to make the choice of life. And you can help. One ultrasound is just $28. Would you join with Preborn in the cause for life? To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Meffer. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Oh, this is rich. I guess we're in for an influx of these kinds of stories between now and the election. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. I don't know if you follow much of his work. I don't. He has an article over at NBC News. And this just really takes the cake. I haven't seen an article this bad in a long time. Here's the headline on the piece. Racism among white Christians is higher than among the non-religious. That's no coincidence. What does that mean? Subhead says, for most of American history, the light-skinned Jesus conjured up by white congregations demanded the preservation of inequality as part of the divine order. What are you talking about? We're in the United States of America. Christians in America in 2020 are not responsible for all of the horrors of the past that were or were not launched in the name of Christianity somewhere, somehow. Again, we're back to the same thing where we had Obama stand up and say, well, you know, the Crusades. I mean, I know about Islamic terrorism over the last several centuries, but, you know, the Crusades, the Crusades. And then he doesn't even tell the truth about the Crusades and why the Crusades were launched in the first place. So that's a whole nother subject. But let's get into this piece a little bit because I want to go after this ideology that he's pushing. Listen, over the last several weeks, he writes, the United States has engaged in a long overdue reckoning with the racist symbols of the past, tearing down monuments to figures complicit in slavery and removing Confederate flags from public displays. But little scrutiny has been given to the cultural institutions that legitimized the worldview behind these symbols, white Christian churches. All right. First of all, he's admitting right up front 
what his take is on so-called white Christianity. There is no such thing as white Christianity. There are white people worshiping the Lord inside churches, and sometimes those churches have majority white people or all white people. Why? Because for many, many years, the majority in the United States and all of our history, uh, it's been a white country with people from other races and other ethnicities blended in to certain numbers. Is it a sin to be white? Well, I think that we already know what the answer to that is in 2020. If you're white, you're guilty of something. You're guilty of supremacy. You're guilty of privilege. You know, what else are you guilty of just for being white? I mean, talk about racism. That's just flat out racism. And if you said it about any other race, everybody would say it's racist. Why? What is racism? I don't know what they're saying these days about racism, but racism historically has been being prejudiced against somebody based on the color of their skin without actually taking the time, like Martin Luther King Jr. stressed, to know the content of the character of the person involved. Wasn't that what the civil rights movement was all about? You shouldn't be isolating black Americans to their own water fountains and their own you know, special spots on the bus just because they have black skin. And that was correct. It was a ridiculous thing. And it was rectified. It was rectified, as was slavery. We went to war over it to stop it, and we stopped it. So all of these things, though, have to be dredged out of the past, and now we have a new war on, an ideological cultural war. You white Christians are evil. So he goes on. A close read of history reveals that we white Christians, oh, okay, self-flagellation, we white Christians have not just been complacent or complicit, rather as the nation's dominant cultural power, we have constructed and sustained a project of perpetuating white supremacy that has framed the entire American story. That is not true. That is fundamentally untrue. When is the last time that this guy sat down and read our founding documents or read the Federalist Papers or read any of the letters or any of the writings, the extra writings of some of the founders of this country, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights on its own? Have you read these lately? Because the fundamental ideas that shaped the United States, which absolutely were shaped by the Bible, were about freedom and individual liberty and inalienable rights that were granted to us by our creator and private property and equality, equality under the law, a lady justice who has a blindfold on. That's as American as it gets, folks. And they took great pains to set into motion the system of government by which these principles could thrive. And because they did that, and yes, they were white men, I don't see that as a sin, because of those white men, We have the freest, most prosperous country that the world has ever seen, and I would argue the most blessed. And we have seen just from a Christian perspective, a country from which we could launch the modern missionary movement that has spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the globe. And we were able to do that because the church could flourish here, unlike in countries that we've seen around the world that are completely oppressive to Christians and persecute Christians. God made sure that this country was free and that helped Christianity spread around the entire world. And now you're going to reduce it to, oh, Christianity. Christianity was not just complicit 
complicit in all of these sins, but you've actually constructed and perpetuated white supremacy. It's a total lie. He goes on to say the legacy of this unholy union still lives in the DNA of white Christianity today and not just among white evangelical Protestants in the South. Yeah, because we know they're all racist, but also among white mainline Protestants in the Midwest and white Catholics in the Northeast. For more than two decades, he says, I've studied the attitudes of religiously affiliated Americans across the country. And year over year in question after question in public opinion polls, a clear pattern has emerged. White Christians are consistently more likely than whites who are religiously unaffiliated to deny the existence of structural racism. Do you see what he just did there? If you do not subscribe to the premise that this country is fundamentally racist, as people like Barack Obama believe, and that we are structurally racist, then you are the problem. It couldn't possibly be that, in fact, this is not a structurally racist country. Didn't we just get through having a black president for two terms? Didn't we fight a civil war to end slavery? Name another country around the world that fought a civil war to end slavery against black people. And that was it was a horrible period in history. But the motivation for stopping slavery was a good one because it was wrong what was being done to these people. But we stopped it. And in the 1960s, we had a civil rights movement and people who were being unjustly sent to different water fountains and had to sit at you know different places when they went out in public. We rectified that. We solved it. We passed federal legislation. And, and the Republican Party actually was, you know, the, the people who get the credit for that. So you have to look back at what's actually happened in American history and look at this and say, if you think this is a structurally racist country, then you're 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 out to lunch, man. I, if that's your premise and you come to us and you say we're racist because we don't agree with your premise. I don't see that Christians largely are the problem. I think you're the problem, Robert Jones. You're the problem because you buy into CRT, critical race theory. And if somebody rejects it and says, I I reject your premise, then you're guilty. Well, you can go ahead and call people guilty, but it doesn't make them racist. Perhaps they just have a different point of view than you do. And you shouldn't be sitting in judgment of all Christians as being a bunch of demons. And here's why this really bothers me is because we're seeing this demonization increasing right? We see what Governor Newsom and other governors around the country are doing to shut down churches, but allow these protests to take place in the streets. They don't care about the church. Then you have the media complicit in this latest blog post that I wrote. You have the media complicit in saying, where is COVID spreading? Churches. Churches are the biggest spreaders of COVID with no scientific evidence for it. It's not that there are no COVID cases spread at churches, but how about Walmart? How about Target? How about grocery stores? How about protests in the streets? They don't do an analysis of those things. It's demonizing. It's marginalizing. And it's going on all the time. Christians are a bunch of homophobes. Christians are a bunch of bigots. Christians are a bunch of racists. Christians hate on and on and on. The insults, the insults, which we can take. Jesus said, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. We already know that. That's part of the deal that you signed up for when you became a Christian. But politically speaking, what happens when this reaches a zenith? When you have demonized and marginalized white people and specifically white Christians to the extent that now you have people who have been motivated to hate particular sectors of society. What happened to celebrating diversity? How come that doesn't include everybody who lives in this country? And why isn't there any honesty about what actually did transpire in the history of this country that was good? 
Have we had bad things in this country? Yeah, and we're seeing some really bad things in our country right now. And the left doesn't want to talk about that stuff. That's good. We have to get rid of America. That'll solve everything. What system would they put in place that would be better? Some kind of utopia, some kind of Marxist universe where everybody will sing songs and hold hands and wander through fields of wildflowers together and all will be well. You guys don't have a clue what you're doing, but these kinds of pieces are just dividing America, not working us toward e pluribus unum as we ought to work for. Thanks so much for being with us. Help us out with Bible League International. Call now 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, and let's get more Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.